Let's review some films. Let's review some films. Let's review some films. See what we gotta say. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to a very special episode of a bunch of things. Um, this is, depending on what you're listening to, an episode of The Franchise Strikes Back, but it's also an episode of Revenge of the 90s. We are doing our very first mega episode crossover event, uh, a mega-sode, if you will. This is on par Shared universe. The shared universe of podcasts uh, through the Robot Butt Network. This is like when you get amped up to watch Chicago PD and Chicago Med. Oh, and- yeah. And Chicago Funeral Home, whatever other Chicago NBC shows there are, um, when they all get together, this is it. This is our Avengers. This is the Avengers of podcasting right here. Um, I am... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Uncanny Cinema did it first. That's true. We're all represented here. Uh, we'll call. We'll do. Uh, Uncanny Cinema is doing the uh, Angels with Filthy Souls. Uh, <laughs> We're doing the we're deep doing dive element. Yeah, the deep dive. Uh, I am Steve. Uh, with me uh, is a bunch of familiar faces. If you are a fan of these podcasts, we have Linton, uh, Tim, and Fabs. Um, depending on uh, what what drives you uh, to listen to our podcast, we're all represented here. So welcome, whoever you might be, whatever uh, audience you're a part of. Uh, we are talking about, this is going to be a two-parter. So the first part is going to be a lot of fun. Second part will be a lot of fun, but it won't be fun watching the movies to get there. Uh, we are doing the Home Alone franchise, <laughs> starting with today's episode, uh, just focusing on Home Alone 1 and 2, the good ones. Um, although it will haunt me till the end of my days, knowing that Roger Ebert thought the third Home Alone was the best of the series. That thought will never leave my brain, and it will. that'll be the it's last. His, it's, his worst ta- it's his worst take. By far. Um, but yeah, so we're talking yeah. about Home Alone 1 and 2. Um, I'll just start it off. We were just talking about it before we started recording. Um, we were all kind of revisiting them. I don't know about you guys. I watch these every year. And honestly, for me, they get better every year. Like I always – I'll probably just I'll, – I'll get into it, but I'll leave it at that. I don't know about you guys, what, what your initial thoughts were revisiting these. Yeah, I mean this is a like staple in our rotation every year. Um, at least for me, I'll, I'll go off and watch both of these movies. Uh, cause I mean, this is just such a massive part of my childhood. This is probably mm-hmm. the first Christmas movie I even remember watching this. And I think like the Muppet Christmas Carol, um, I wanted to be Kevin McAllister so bad. I, I love everything about these films and they, they hold up. I mean, they're still hilarious. It's still remarkable. We did the Goodfellas episode that Joe Pesci came back for this sequel after winning his Oscar for Goodfellas. He's like, oh, yeah, I just won my Oscar. Career-defining moment. Yeah, I'll be in that kid's holiday movie, a sequel to a holiday movie, because those always go so well. Um, but I'm, yeah, sure, it, I'm sure he got a good payday for it. Oh, yeah, I, I'm sure they gave him points after he saw that the first one made like $500 million. But, yeah, I mean, it, 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 this is Christmas. I, I, this, this pumps me up every time I watch these movies. I think the weird thing for me is – Like these are fundamentally, these are Christmas movies. They're great holiday family movies. But as a kid, I never treated them as holiday movies. They were, they weren't movies that you watched at Christmas time. I, anytime they were available at the library, I was, I was borrowing the VHS and I would just like watch it three times over the weekend, you know, especially the second one. The second one, you know, was always available more often than the first. So I watched the second one 
a lot more growing up, but it wasn't just like, oh, it's Christmas time for Home Alone. It's like, oh, it's July and it's at the library. So I'm going to get it and make my parents watch it with me, even though it's, you know, (laughs) 90 degrees outside. Christmas in July. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, I, I also grew up with these. I mean, I think like pretty much anyone I knew did. My cousins were big on these movies. So if I go to their place, it would be something we would often watch or talk about. A lot of friends I grew up with were big fans of this. So it was just, it was just in, in the, uh, you're just by osmosis. You were surrounded by the home alone movies. I mean, particularly the first one, because um, you know, we'll talk later, I think about like the success that it was, but it was such a kind of cultural milestone. I mean, that's goofy to say since it's like a weird funny kids movie, but like it genuinely was. I mean, if you, if you're a little bit younger than some of us, maybe you didn't grow up with it and you just like knew it as a thing that was on TV every year or something like this movie was huge at the time and kind of changed how Hollywood approached kids movies and family movies and things like that. And um, but but as a kid at the time, you're just it, it's similar to like Jurassic Park. Like I was 10 when Jurassic Park came out and it was just it. You are the perfect audience for at that age. You are the audience for it. I mean, everybody else obviously enjoyed Jurassic Park as well. But the same thing when Home Alone came out, I think I would have been like seven. And then when it came on VHS, I would have been like eight. So, I mean, I'm like the age of Kevin McAllister when this comes out. It was and- like speaking to you. Yeah. And it, I mean, and I loved it and we had it on VHS and I probably watched it. I mean, I I don't know how many times I would have watched this as a kid, but as much as probably Jurassic Park or Back to the Future, which are other movies that I love over the years, I think I kind of became less enamored with it. Not because I like thought it was bad, but just sort of like a, you know, you're growing up and maybe you're not connecting as much. And it's kind of like, oh, that's like a kid's movie. But then definitely, you know, I've swung back around to like, oh, no, these are just like genuinely really good and fun. Um, but yeah, so for me, they they what Fabs was saying is like that they're your childhood or, or our childhood very much is on point and revisiting them, which I I haven't watched them like back to back or at all, really, in quite a while. Um, and yeah, they're just they're very fun. I think what's cool. Sorry, go ahead, Steve. Oh no, uh, I was just going to say, like, it's it's cool because when you're seven or eight years old, you're not like, oh shit, this is a John Hughes movie. Like, you don't think like (laughs) like you're not like you didn't do that. (laughs) But you know, you think like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) right. You're not uh, you know enamored with that element of it. Um, You're just loving the fact that you're getting to watch like what is essentially a live action Looney Tunes movie. And like, it's, it's a lot of like three stooges, Looney Tunes all bashed together where it's like, it's impossible, you know, to not laugh at, you know, it gets pretty repetitive after a while, especially when you're watching it back to back, you're like, just just the pain that these guys are going through, but it's still, but even now it's like, after seeing it for the thousandth time, like when I see, uh, um, Marv get electrocuted, it's like, it's still funny to me. Like it's still electrocuting people to death. Oh, all right. I will, I will okay. Never, all right. I think you know. I think that's 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 one. Of, like there were two things that stuck out to me rewatching it this time, and and the first is, like you said, like there is that kind of repetitive. But you get to the last thirty minutes of both movies, and 
like when I was a kid, that would like, it was almost like you sat through everything else to get to that final stretch. And then, and it's, 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 it is still a lot of fun, but it's almost, especially in the second movie, I feel it takes a really big tonal shift because the movie leading up to that, I mean, it's, it's still kind of silly. There's still kind of exaggeration and stuff like that, but it is really kind of focused on Kevin and his wishes and his fears and how he deals with different situations when he's forced to be on his own and confront different situations with the adult world. And then you get to that, like that last 30 minutes and then the movie shift and it becomes a live action cartoon. And you're just watching him terrorize these two grown men who are suffering debilitating injuries. And then well, just these guys do want to kill more. him. Yeah. I mean, he's, got, he's not terrorizing them. They want to, they do want to murder him. <laughs> well, well, but I'm saying, but okay, so what sure. I to finish my thought was, um, I, I, I wasn't going that route. Uh, I was actually saying, I do love that part of it. I do love oh, that. I do it, too. Okay. But Just, I'm saying like, as I got older, I get to enjoy the fact that it, these are like two movies written by John Hughes that are expert comedies in in not just the physical aspect but also there's so many good lines throughout both of these movies they're they're real tight scripts and the um the performances are great like kevin uh, macaulay culkin is like unbelievable as a child actor he was a great find unbelievable unbelievable and he he brings so much life to these lines and there's like so much um to enjoy about just every aspect of these movies like when Buzz and every year I watch it, there's something new that I like. When Buzz says, "Like I wouldn't let you sleep in my room if you weren't if you were growing on my ass," that's a great line. <laughs> it's so funny. Well, and that's like I said, like as a kid, like you you just wait for the last thirty minutes. But revisiting now, I mean, the thirty minutes is still fun, and I really like it. But there's a lot more that I enjoy in the lead up to that. Like you were saying, there are a lot of good yep. lines. There's a lot of great line delivery. Um, you know that you know you have a you actually have a really good cast of of like character actors and actresses that are you know really giving it their all when you know typically you don't need to for these kind of movies like no one you know especially before this like you know kid family movies you know there people didn't care about them as much but here you have you have you know Joe Pesci Daniel Stern Catherine O'Hara they're like given these roles Tim Curry is like an MVP in part two. And like, it's one of my favorite Tim Curry line readings in, in home alone too. Um, they're giving it their all. And it just, which one, why, why just leave that dangling? Which yeah. one? Uh, what, what his, his, I love you. Like just the oh. way he delivers it. It is like my favorite Tim Curry line reading. Cause I can watch that scene countless times and I still laugh at it. I mean, that was so smart of them though, too. Because you know you're going to have your zany Looney Tunes last 30 minutes of the movie. But you needed to do something in the second one to, like, one-up parts of the first. Like, you couldn't just have the same antics. And so to add, like, Tim Curry and Rob Schneider does, like, pretty great in this, too. That just, like, that added that whole other element where what you guys are talking about. That cast of characters that brings all this different humor that you don't get in the first one. Yeah, and uh, like what Steve was touching on about like the lines and the character work. I mean, that's what stands out to me most as an adult. I think everyone's right that you don't focus on that stuff as a kid, and you're focused on the cool traps. I mean, I remember like yeah, yeah. like like my cousin had Kevin's map, 
you know, the, like his trap map. I think they actually like released it in some kind of like limited poster form. Now you can like get it everywhere, you know, on Amazon or Etsy or whatever. Right. But I remember as a kid thinking that that was like the coolest thing that he had it, which I guess Macaulay Culkin actually drew that. They had him, yes. which oh, I thought was awesome. like a really cool detail. I always thought it was just like some production dude, you know, it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to make this look like a kid did it. But like they actually had Culkin do it. Some so, poor intern lost their job to Macaulay Culkin. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like what really stands out, especially rewatching them after I haven't in a while, is the script, especially in the first. I mean, I think the second one works well, too. But especially in the first, it's so tight and the lines are really solid and the performances are there. And really what you're seeing is it's as good as the best John Hughes movies. Like if we're just talking totally. just the first, first one for a second like the quality of that writing is as good as Ferris Bueller or Breakfast Club or Planes, Trains and Automobiles. And so you're seeing that kind of like his style of humor, which would often be like dry and sarcastic. Sometimes there'd be some zaniness happening in Ferris or Planes, Trains. You know, he just like kind of up the zaniness and we shift instead of focusing on a teenager like we do in most of those movies or on an ad executive like in Planes, Trains, Automobiles or whatever. All right, well, now we're going to focus on an eight-year-old kid. So he really didn't miss a beat in, in working within that world that he had created for the course of like a decade. And it it works perfectly. I mean, yeah, obviously that when the traps happen, we're like a little past the John Hughes world that we've established in other ones. But there's other silly things that happen in some of those other movies as well. This one just ups the ante. But yeah, like the lines are really solid. Catherine O'Hara is probably the funniest person in it, I feel like just just like delivering a lot of solid dialogue. And then you get John Candy showing up and he's like killing it in like every moment of his like mm-hmm. six or seven minutes that he's in. And he did um, that all in one day too. Oh, I believe. When they, yeah, and I, I think, I'm I think sure a good amount did. of it was improvised as well. Yeah. Um so I think he just showed up. Like, yeah. They so were just, just like, you, there's nothing for you, just come and do this. Like <laughs> you wandered no in off the street. Yeah, I mean, really. They were just like, Hey, could you do this as a favor, basically? I think. And yeah. Well, yeah, and I think he and Hughes were like pretty good friends after having like worked on Plain Straits Automobiles and uh, he might have been in some other projects at times. But but yeah, like just the as an adult, you can, I mean, it's it's like Pixar. I, you know, there are things there that as an adult, you can watch and be like, I am enjoying this on a completely different level than my kid. But my kid is enjoying it on their level. And that's totally fine. And I can still appreciate the level they're on, like when. When they get hit in the face with paint cans, like it works. So yeah. like it's yeah. it it does it, you know, it's approached from such a place of care and it stands out from so much other family garbage that was before it and that it inspired. And including the other three movies in this series. Probably, yeah. which we will get Probably. to Probably. in the next but that's part. Like, but that's the thing is like even when you start to get into the third and then obviously the fourth and the the, the fifth one that has Malcolm McDowell in it, um, you – it's is just it, like – Are three droogs with him? <laughs> yes. <laughs> they uh, – it's it's just night and day because it's it, – it really – uh it's as if the other ones in the series and then many of the other children's movies beyond that just like completely forgot how to make a movie that can be for both adults and kids and not just be like 
a real silly like like in the in the follow-up home alones and then in plenty of kids movies after it was like oh the only thing good about home alone is when the bad guys get hit in the face exactly and, yeah. you know what i mean and so like there's and, and to these people who are making these other ones offshoots and inspired by and whatever they're like that's what you came to see so we're just going to do it but also not even do it as well as the other ones and that and that's the only redeeming quality like yeah, it's it's there's so much more to like about these movies than just like bad guys getting hit in the face, which is a fun payoff. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, having to watch these back to back, it was like I enjoyed it for so many other reasons. Um, and it's fun now to like dissect. Like I like looking at this and trying to dissect like how shitty a family. Like if I had to think oh, like yes. isolate, how uh, shitty uh, are the McAllisters as a family? That is right? what I wanted. That's what I wanted to get into next because I know we all commented on it in our notes, and that was that was the second big thing that that stuck out to me is his family is just awful, and yeah. it's like and I, like I like the one thing I said was the family dynamics in these movies to me are more unrealistic than the movies takes on physics because like I come from a bigger family. I was the oldest child. There is no way that buzz would have gotten in the most shit for what he pulled in both movies. Like like, if I had done what buzz did, like where, like where I was like pretending to throw up the pizza and then my little brother got mad and pushed me. Like, it doesn't matter that all the, the, the pop and soda spilled over tickets and everything. My ass would have been on the line. Cause I'm the oldest and I know better. And the right. second one, especially that was when, yeah, he, it, yeah. he is when he ruining, does it in front of everybody, he is ruining Kevin's solo and just humiliating him. Like good for Kevin for sticking up yeah. for himself. And like, what a pussy his dad is to not like, be like, to first be like to go to his brother Uncle Frank and be like, "You son of a bitch, stop laughing at my my yeah, son." Yeah, I'm gonna stop paying for your <laughs> like, family yeah. to fly everywhere. And then Frank is just like, when when everything happens in the first movie, he's just like, "Look what you did, you little jerk!" And there's so like, there's so like, much the seething fuck? anger in his yeah. voice. It's crazy. I I, don't I will. The second one is is particularly bad. Yeah, I, I'm with you because I hadn't watched it in ages, and so if you haven't watched the movie in a long time, the setup. Cause they have to like recreate the setup of the whole family's mad at Kevin and Kevin's mad at the whole family. And so the first one I think works better than the second. And the second is they're doing this concert and Kevin's singing a solo and buzzes behind him with these fake candles, like doing stupid shit. And so the audience is laughing, which I don't think they would be. They would be more like, look at that asshole fucking with his little brother. But the audience is laughing their heads off at children, at children. And Buzz isn't even doing anything particularly funny. It's just like, oh, I'm putting these lights up by his ears. Anyway, so the audience is laughing. So obviously Kevin is embarrassed. And then he he pushes Buzz and ends up like knocking everyone off the stage and and Honestly, yeah, pretty and, impressive for him. And and Kevin gets in trouble. I'm with everyone that Buzz absolutely is the cause of that and in reality should be yelled at. I do think the first one is a little better on it, though, because no one's paying attention when Buzz is like fake throwing up. And so right. they only yeah. pay attention once Kevin shoves him and like, stu- like stuff spilling on passports. And so... I think the implication is there is they didn't know anything was really going on with Buzz and they thought Kevin was just being like mad pissy. about the pizza. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think that one's a little more explainable. Although, yeah, when like literally the entire family turns to Kevin and just stares him down, it's like, how dare you spill pop? 
It's yeah. like, uh... and, and, and speaking and speaking from experience, where like I've been in those kind of situations. Like, even if no one had actually seen what Buzz was doing, if something like that had happened, and then you turn and look, and it's me and like my brother Mikey, I think that would have been a comparable age difference between Buzz and, and Kevin in the movie. When whenever we look at me, my parents would have gone to me and go, "What did you do?" Because I'm the oldest. Like I should be in charge of like that's 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 how those family dynamics work in a sane family. Not your eight year old son. Yeah. You know, it's like And I get that the movie I get that the movie wants the audience to be on Kevin's side. Like the audience has to buy into Kevin wishing for his family to go away otherwise the movie doesn't work but like again right, right. coming from coming from a larger family and like seeing those kinds of situations having played out in real life i'm just kind of like that's not what would have happened totally. also uncle frank absolutely has both an all lives matter and a blue lives matter bumper sticker on his car and he gets really <laughs> mad and confused when people tell him that doesn't make sense it's also it's also abundant <laughs> That's right. It's also abundantly clear that like this family has a lot of problems beyond just like the two like uh, Christmas episodes. So like Buzz is obviously like an asshole of a kid that it's got to be plainly clear 364 other days of the year. So (laughs) that's also very concerning that like they take Buzz's side because Kevin is dealing with this year round with his brother and like his other siblings who all hate his guts. Apparently the other thing that like drove me nuts is that the family goes through a very traumatic experience and then the very next year decides to do it all over again where I'm like saying, are you kidding yeah like you they would are think not that good parents <laughs> they would think that they'd be parents. like we're staying home this year we're gonna have a christmas at home we're just gonna enjoy each other's company no they're gonna do in it the, all over just, again in the best holiday house ever because one you don't have to risk losing your kid again and having a traumatic episode Two, frank and his deadbeat fucking family isn't showing up to cost you more money and like ruin another holiday, and and Frank in this in the second movie got to pick the hotel, and picked the shittiest like motel I've ever seen. It's, yeah, it was, it's not a hotel; it's a motel. They had two adjoining rooms, right, with two beds each. For how many people were there? Like fifteen. Yeah, you can well, make argument that Kevin gave them a way better vacation because now like. <laughs> The freaking uh, Plaza Hotel, Plaza, yeah, so much, and those are they're sweet. Mister Duncan's giving them thousands of dollars worth of presents. <laughs> Which, and since we're on that, both Caitlin and I laughed at the end of the second movie because, like, the first movie ends like you know everyone gets home, everyone kind of makes amends with Kevin. Which again the family being presented as shittily as they are kind of undercuts the sentimentality of the reunions at the end, but whatever, they're still really sweet moments. And then you get buzz yelling like, Kevin, what happened to my room? Cause only earlier in the movie, he like tries to climb up his shelves to get to something and it all just collapses. So buzz's room is a mess. So that's like justifiably something like buzz would get upset about at the end of the second movie they, they want to create the same kind of ending. So Rob Schneider's bellhop dude comes and gives the the bill for the, the room service. And it's like $967. And his dad, like, you can hear him screaming from outside the hotel. Like, Kevin, you ordered $967 worth of room service. And it's not even $1,000. It's not that bad. Right, right, right. Considering... You got a free penthouse suite. You right. got 
you got thousands of dollars worth of free toys your, and your son's alive your son is alive like well and the other fun thing all things considered that's not I'll, that I'll, much i'll say that that is a lot for room service but i also say his dad absolutely can afford it oh, like yeah, like exactly. he's some kind of like rich chicago financial dude who can afford these trips for like a family of 28 or whatever it is every year <laughs> The other fun thing about that scene uh, that I never really realized is that the other reason that Kevin's family deserves all this torment is that he, when they're all opening, when they're like ravenously opening Mr. Duncan's gifts, Kevin sneaks out of the hotel and no one noticed. (laughs) So Caitlin brought that same thing up as we were watching (laughs) Like, where is uh, Kevin's mom? Like, should have been like, I'm never losing sight of you again. But she's too busy with her nose under the tree digging for presents. <laughs> and, and, and and before that, like, Buzz gives his nice little speech to try to, like, make good with Kevin. He's like, I think Kevin should open the first present. He and tosses the second, the and Kevin. the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and all of what? them. Because they right. belong to Kevin. <laughs> 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 even putting that aside w- within the rules buzz is setting up he tosses a present to kevin merry christmas kevin he's already said kevin should open the first present literally a, a second after he tosses the present to kevin he just goes all right let's dig in like completely forgetting that kevin's supposed to be opening the first present so then everyone else just dives in starts opening presents kevin's still holding standing there with the first present he hasn't opened everything and everyone has completely forgotten I feel I feel it was more symbolic than anything. Yeah, but I like also that they just they like barely question like who Mister Duncan is, and (laughs) then just like get right into it. And I never really, I guess I never really think about this when I watch these movies. But it is nuts that his family does not know what Kevin just endured two years in a row. (laughs) Like they do not know how close to death this kid came. Yeah, you you brought that up in the notes. I I think like in the first one, he basically cleans everything up theoretically. Like he does, except, yeah. except for Buzz's yeah. room, he forgets about Buzz's room because it wasn't. Does he forget? Part... <laughs> well, that, that's that's fair. But I think because it wasn't part of like the onslaught of murdering the burglars, his attempt at murdering the burglars. <laughs> like I think he doesn't think of it because it was like start earlier in the day or whatever. And maybe because he can't like build full on bookshelves <laughs> because he's eight. I don't know, but yeah, it's like so. I think the idea is that everything is like a resolved in yeah. the first one. That is, Cause one... I did because I did notice what because I did. I don't think I ever picked up on this before. When he does call the cops in the first one, he gives them the address to the neighbor's house. Yeah. That's where the cops arrest him. So the cops have no reason to think they ever went to the McAllister right. house and. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know uh, so the only way that anyone would know is if Harry and, and Marv decided that they were going to try to tell the cops about all the shit they went through with with the kid, which they probably wouldn't because that would they would just look insane. And I like also... to think that young Florida legislatures watch this movie and create the stand your ground law based off this movie. <laughs> Well, so this this relates to one of the things I wanted to bring up, which is uh, especially rewatching it as an adult. But I read this a couple years ago and then looking at some trivia, I, I saw it was stated again. So John Hughes, when writing the first one, was very adamant about filling all the plot holes because he had uh, Chris Columbus said this. But I, I also saw it in some article where they're talking about it. 
So I guess John Hughes had the idea of he was like going on a trip somewhere and making a list of like, oh, what do, what do I not want to forget? And he had like kind of the fleeting thought of like, oh, I don't want to forget the kids. It's <laughs> like, hey, what if I did? And so like, I guess like that's the, what a the great genesis that would be. Yeah. So that was the the origin of the the script. But then he started to question like, well, wait would anyone literally ever like be able to forget a child? And so he had to concoct to make the whole thing work. He had to lie. And because he was a fucking great screenwriter, he had to concoct what he felt was a plausible scenario for that to work. And if you watch the movie with that in mind, there's a ton of signifiers of like how he got to that place where we don't question it. And uh, we, you know, at least we were able to buy into it. So obviously one thing is they have an enormous family. So that's one aspect of like, yeah, there's just lots of people here and lots of people moving around. And anyone who's been yeah. at a party with a bunch of like family <laughs> he's an members. Only, he's an only child and they just like forget him. <laughs> yeah. So like <laughs> if you've been at a party with family members, you don't, you know, like, oh, you know, where's, where's Jack? Oh, I don't know. He, you know, he's, I think he's outside right now. <laughs> like, you know, you just, you lose track. But yeah, so you have Kevin's ticket and passport gets thrown away accidentally. You have the power gets cut, uh, power and phone lines go out. So that cuts down on like that, that screws them up so that they're late for the airport. That means that there aren't any phone lines. So they can't easily contact them. So they're late for the flight. Everybody gets split up on the flight because they were late. And so they don't know where, just like the thing at the house, they don't know where anyone's at. Um, Kevin was stuck in the attic because of everyone hates him. He's eight. Um, and so, and then they, he writes into the thing of like, oh, Fuller wets the bed. So he can't be with Kevin. So that way, cause you're going to notice if two kids are gone, but right. you know, so he's, he's stuck off in the attic. Um, the neighbor kid shows up and, yeah. and he gets accidentally counted. Uh, they call the police to check on Kevin. And, um, you know, so that, like, obviously if you're watching as an adult, you'd be like, well, wait, that obviously you need to have this have this be done they need to call the cops and they do and there's a very fun dialogue scene where they're going back and forth like uh hyper online too like that whole thing and then they actually get a cargo that's a good Chicago uh, <laughs> well they actually get a cop to the place and kevin won't uh respond to the door because he's accidentally stolen a toothbrush so there's a reason and he's afraid the cops are coming for him and so then you have that great moment where uh, the cop, the Chicago cop says, ah, there's nobody at home. The lights are on. The house looks secure. Tell them to count their kids again. And it's sort of like, fuck this. Like, why am I? Yeah. And it, like, <laughs> All cops are bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think it just like it shows it shows the care that John Hughes was willing to put and and pushing himself to put into this film. And if you think about so many family comedies, especially after this, and you know, where it's just like, Oh, we hit him in the head or we hit him in the crotch. And that's like all, you know, you get that for 90 minutes. They don't give a fuck about how you get from point A to point B. They're just like, I don't know, just throw these people in this scenario. Does it make sense? Ah, who cares? And, but like Hughes does make efforts to make it seem like, yeah, okay. If all these dominoes fell in this way, this could make sense. That's what my wife Kevin, commented on. She was like, this movie doesn't have any potholes. That's super weird for a kid's movie. And I was like, I, it's John Hughes for you. The only one that my wife, the only one my wife threw out there was 
how in the world does the entire street go on vacation at the that's same true. time? Yeah. That yeah. was the only one that she noticed, which I was like, that's fair. Were because- they on vacation or was he just hitting, were they just hitting them when they were like not home and at work and stuff? I, I was all, it's always been kind of foggy on me for that. I, I think they're all on vacation because otherwise, like other, if they were just hitting the houses when people weren't home, Within the stretch of time the movie takes place, sure. in, there would have been cops there. Yeah, the cops would have been called. So yeah, so, they would so yeah, everyone is on vacation. It's which I, yeah. They I guess that, that, that could have to do with just like Chicago rich people, though. Maybe they, I was going to say yeah. like I I've never thought much about it because like it's clear we're in a very wealthy rich person neighborhood. So yeah, they like to flaunt their wealth. What do you guys um, think uh, Peter McAllister's job is? Well, according to the novelization, mom, he's mom. in some kind of financial stuff and the mom mom is like in fashion design and that's why you see like there's some sewing stuff and oh and yeah there's okay. stuff in the, there's stuff in the basement that kevin ends up using uh, like the the lady oh, the, the mannequins, mannequins and stuff thing. so yeah according to the novelization i don't know if like hughes had that in mind or if the novelization guy like just came up with that but that's supposedly yeah, I the everyone going on vacation wasn't anything that ever stuck out to me, but I do like the closest something that I think does come close to being kind of a plot hole, at least for me, is Kevin must be one hell of a sound sleeper because everyone is screaming and running around that oh, house yeah, that yeah. morning. <laughs> and he like it's not even that like he like it's well after they're boarding the plane and all of a sudden sleepy bed hair bedhead kevin comes down from the attic wondering where everyone is like it'd be one thing like it'd be one thing if everyone just like got up and left and he but like the 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 movie makes a joke out of everyone like running around and screaming and everything's frantic and chaotic and yeah he's up in the attic but like the attic also doesn't look that well insulated so (laughs) i i feel like as especially as a kid where like you tend to like wake up early when you're excited for things and like christmas and all of that like him just sleeping through all of that and like completely missing it all and waking up hours after the fact was kind of like uh well maybe, it's also fairly but... it's, yeah it's fairly unbelievable too that like even with the clocks all being out literally nobody in this like 18 person house wakes up Woke even up just like randomly yeah yeah just like oh hey wait a minute i think maybe we should be going the p kid didn't have to go to the bathroom at all during the night like oh yeah i mean they had to clean him probably <laughs> so that delayed them in the morning he probably had peed all over himself and because they and especially since they established okay we have to what was his name fuller right yeah, fuller yeah. like since, since Kevin, like, didn't want to sleep with him, they had to put him with someone else, which means, like, there's a very good chance he peed on someone. Oh, for sure. During the night. Well, also, <laughs> so, like, they get one alarm. Like, I would, if I'm doing an, ex- if I had spent that money, you know, flying multiple family members, even, even knowing that uh, Mr. McAllister is, like, loaded, it's still probably 30 or 40, $30,000 for this vacation in the nineties. So like, you're not going to want to sleep through it. You're setting multiple alarms, not just like this one single alarm. Oh, I guess they slept through it the first time, but the second time you have multiple alarms. You don't just have your one like old timey radio clock that you're setting. Yeah. It's, just, it's crazy. Which he like, which like his dad, like a dumbass, unplugs <laughs> in the second movie. <laughs> Wait, like, these, these guys suck. They're like, so bad. For me personally, the the second movie actually has the more believable setup for me for like Kevin being separated from the family because like they they do all get to the airport together 
they're 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 rushing just like in the first one so they're rushing so they're all like in that mindset airports you know especially pre pre 911 airports like every like it's crowded you're going every which way like to me that was that was more believable for Kevin to get lost and wind up on the wrong plane but did they, was it after security tim that like that's when that they get separated because you're going to be bottlenecked that so even like pre 911 there was still security lines I, I honestly don't remember how they security don't, lines they don't, work pre-9-11, so I don't, don't know. They don't show it in the film. They don't ever show security, and that might be Hughes uh, sidestepping it intentionally. Yeah. They do bring up security when the cop is asking them, you know, okay. where did you see him last? So they ask about security. Um, I think based on the layout of the airport, they're running through, like, the main areas with all the dining stuff. Yeah, you don't get you don't get to the actual security checkpoints until you get close to the wings of the gates and stuff. Yeah. Um, and well, so, go ahead. There's, uh, uh, sorry, not to cut you off, but I, I th- the thought I've always had is that they're in the terminal, so they've already gone through security, yeah. and that's how he gets and to the gate. And that's where they're sprinting. But I, but I don't think they are though. I, I I could I could be wrong. It's been a little while since I've flown because of COVID. But oh, still but it but it's. But at some point, though, when Kevin mixes up and follows one guy and not his dad, like his dad's going to like gates B and the other guy's going to like gate C. And that seems to be more of like the open area of the airport when you are okay. like when you can go in like a lot of different directions instead of you're in C terminal. But I don't know. I, I could in, be in they, larger in, in, in no matter what the movie doesn't show you. So, yeah, in larger yeah. airports, because I, I flew to Atlanta last year. Um, and like all those restaurants and stuff like that, like that's after the security checkpoints. So I, th- I think they, like, I think conceivably they would have. Yeah. They're flying out of Midway or yeah. O'Hare. They're, they're going to be at a large airport. So I, yeah. Cause I've LAX has, um, dining options after and before. So I, I was just curious, but yeah, they did, they did make that mention. So yeah, I guess theoretically the idea is they were all together at security and then Kevin, was like oh i still want to do this battery thing for my talk boy and and it's also very conceivable that like as you know like a little boy you you know you tell him like just do it on the plane you know you you Mm -hmm. put your batteries in your thing on the plane but like for a boy he's like that's the most important thing on the planet yeah i need it now yeah right so like he would stop in the middle of a concourse to do the batteries and then i think you're totally right that it is very conceivable that he gets lost by doing that. Like now I'm, I'm blaming the parents for being shitheads again and not being like, Oh, absolutely. oh my God, we need Kevin. Like we yeah, just I'm went through this. Everybody yeah. again, like they even ask, like, do you have everybody? And the mom's like, uh, I think so. And, and my wife again was like, Oh, like, but they're going to know Kevin's boarding pass is different. And then like literally 10 seconds later, he collides. She's like, Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Never mind. Like, yeah, Hughes, so Hughes is still is still trying to like make it all work, and I mean to his it credit because he it does. does. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that struck me as false with that though is they all get on the plane and like the parents don't do one final check to right. make sure everyone's seated on the plane. Like they don't make a check to know where all their kids are in relation to themselves on the plane in case something does happen. So that was that was the only thing that rang false to me in the setup in the second one, especially considering you just lost the fucking kid last year. Like and especially like they have they have the dialogue. They have the dialogue on the plane where like she's like, I have that feeling again. We forgot something like last year. Like maybe that should have been the inspiration to do do a head count on the plane. 
get the plane turnaround, ruin everybody's holiday. And uh, <laughs> but no, Lynn, you're so right though. Cause they do, they, it's so amazing. This is why these movies work. It's not because of the zany shit that happens. Those are the cherry on top, but the little things where it's like, Oh, we're all sitting together. Uh, we're not, we're, none of us are sitting together. Uh, we should have been lucky just to get a flight like this late in the game. Yeah. Just so it's not like there's two rows of McAllister's and there's, an empty seat like those little things are just so good i I love it well one other like production thing i wanted to bring up uh because it seems worthy of talking about i've never dug into behind the scenes stuff i've never watched any like making ofs for these movies they they're probably interesting i should do it sometime you should there's one on netflix that is very good okay so it's um there's a series before you get in your thing yeah uh there's a series called the movies that made us and yeah. uh, they, oh, okay. they did one on home alone. And what the one thing that always sticks out of my mind about it, there's a lot of good stuff in there, but the one that always blows my mind is that they built the, they used an abandoned Chicago area high school gymnasium and they took, they built the home set inside of the, uh, the <laughs> pool. Awesome. Yeah. So when they flooded it, like they could like flood it, they could do all sorts of stuff with it. Uh, like they flooded like the basement of that other like second house or whatever. I think it was like the same basement scene or whatever uh, or same set. But basically that entire set was just built inside of like a pool. So they could do like all sorts of crazy stuff with it. And it was all built like yeah. indoors. So like their sound stage was like a gym. Like it was, it's pretty cool the way they describe it. Yeah. Awesome. I, I, I was looking up some stuff uh, before I jump in my thing that the, um, they actually did film some stuff at that house, which I didn't know. Like, I mean, the exterior, obviously, but they did film some stuff, I guess, like stuff on the stairwell um, and then stuff at the front of the the house there. Like as you walk in the front hallway and stuff like some of that actually is that real house. So I think they kind of modeled the interior of the fake house off of the real house, which is super cool that if you That's actually so awesome. could buy, if you could buy the home alone house, it would be at least like close to the, the home alone house that you've seen, which is really neat. Um, yeah. but so there's that. And then on what you're saying, Steve, I wouldn't be surprised if they built the stuff you're talking about in the same location where he shot the breakfast club, because I know when they did the breakfast club, they worked in a high school gymnasium, which is why the breakfast club has a library that is the size of an aircraft carrier, <laughs> like the, most, the biggest high school library anyone has ever seen in, in their life. Yeah. It was like the beauty and the beast library, but for high school students. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so I wouldn't be surprised if he went back to the same location or got Chris, I guess, cause Chris Columbus, we keep talking about John Hughes, but Chris Columbus actually uh, directed the film. Right. Right. Um, but Hughes fingerprints are all, all over this with producing and writing, but uh, the behind the scenes thing I wanted to bring up was just uh, some of the possible casting that they looked at. Um, so I'm just going to read off some names. There's tons of other ones, but some of the people, uh, Robert De Niro turned down the role of Harry. Uh, Danny, Danny DeVito was considered for Harry. Christopher, Ro- uh, Christopher Lloyd turned down Marv because uh, I think he was doing other stuff. But man, he would have been fun. So yeah. I, I love Christopher Lloyd. He also later played a similar role in Dennis the Menace, which John Hughes. Was. I was just going to say, you know, like, it, was a, it was a very similar, like creepy guy. Terrifying looking. So, yeah. Creepy. Yeah. so uh, Michael Richards was considered for Marv, which makes a lot uh, of sense. I don't uh, know if I, that would have been, I don't think that would have worked out as you well. You don't think that would have worked? Yeah. I, I don't I, know. I, Tim is just insane. We're going to cut his I, mic any moment now. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, th- I, I just feel like, I mean, because especially at a time, like, if he, like, went to Kramer, like, I, like, 
I think Daniel Stern did a really good job of making Marv like cartoonish, but still kind of understated. If you understand what I mean, sure. Especially what, especially since you have Harry, who like, especially when you get to the later stretch of the film, is just like constantly like mumbling and angrily muttering under his breath. I think, yeah, I, th- I think I think Stern actually kind of brought a bit of understatement to the chaos that was going on. And he was, not sure he was like the straight man. Yeah, yeah I don't think child. I don't know. Yeah. If, Michael what? Richard, Michael Richards, and Problem Child as the villain. He escapes prison. You gotta check it out. <laughs> hey, that's a okay. 1990 movie. We can do that for revenge. <laughs> I have not seen that, so okay. So some of the others were Rowan Atkinson apparently auditioned for Harry, which is kind of weird because he seems more of a Marv to me. Bob Hoskins turned down the role of Harry. John Lovitz okay. turned down the role of Harry. Alan wow. Rickman was considered for Harry, which is just like boggles oh, my mind what? of how that movie would have been. Um, so he there were those, and then, of the greatest holiday movies ever. <laughs> And then the then the other stuff, there's a huge list of names for a character that I think doesn't deserve a huge list of names, but so I'm not gonna read them all. But so apparently for the for the father, Peter McAllister, who like the father. The father. Uh, for my for my money, like I think Catherine O'Hare is amazing in this as she's amazing in everything. The dad is like okay. I don't think he's particularly funny, he might have a couple funny lines. There's nothing against that actor. I don't know that yeah. the role was written particularly funny, but I I think a more comedic actor probably could have like found stuff. Like I'm sure Catherine O'Hara made stuff work really well because she's just supremely talented. But if you look at the list of like, it was basically like a who's who of any forties to like late thirties to early fifties, like men of the era of like tons of people, like Kevin Costner, Chevy Chase, Harrison Ford, Tom Hanks, Mel Gibson, just this huge list. Um, Jeff Goldblum and Sam Neill were considered. Um, wow. Like Sam Neill. Bill, <laughs> Bill, Bill Murray, Steve Martin. And it got me thinking like, Steve so like for, well, for some, for some of these, like for Steve Martin and Bill Murray and stuff, like I love them. Dan Aykroyd was another in there. Um, some of them were not comedic actors so much. I guess Jack Nicholson was considered. <laughs> Yeah, considered, uh, I guess. Like I yeah, like John Goodman, Robin Williams. I mean, there's a huge list, but like wow. so for the more comedic slanting ones, it makes me wonder how it would have been because Catherine O'Hara is fantastic, but she's always sort of played like character roles and she's been in smaller things. She's never been like a star, and she's phenomenal in this movie as she is in everything. But I wonder if you take a star like a Bill Murray or a Steve Martin or a Dan Aykroyd at that time and you put them in like this real secondary role as the dad. Like, yeah, you're going to be the dad. You're going to have like 20 lines and most of them aren't funny. Maybe you yeah. can make them funny. Like, I wonder if like people would have like been weirded out that like Steve Martin and Bill Murray are in this movie and they're like hardly in it. Or if you would have had this kind of clash of personalities where maybe you know even if they're not like shitty dudes if they're just sort of like hey i kind of want a bigger part here chris you know and it's and they start to overshadow like i don't think the dad in this is particularly great but i i I feel like if you would want to amp up that character comedically you would need a more comedic supporting character actor like Catherine o'hara where it's like you can have somebody who's super funny but they aren't a star well, I think I think what would have happened is if you had gotten like one of those like big name stars in the father's role, what would have ended up happening is they would have switched 
and the re- it would have been the relationship between Kevin and his father that would become integral. I like, can yeah. see that. Basically, basically if Catherine Harris still in the movie, she would be pushed to the side, I think, unfairly, so that you could have, I don't know, fucking Chevy Chase have he was on more the list, screens. Yeah. You, you know, he would have more screen time, and so he gets the big hug with Kevin at the end of the movies and everything. But I, I, I think it works. Even if you have, like, a bigger name star and a more comedic person at like really giving it their all in the role of the father. I do think it works better having the integral relationship between Kevin and the mom. Cause I think, I think that it's unexpected. Like, yeah. And, and it, I, I think, I think it helps sell the, Emo- like the the sincerity of the emotion at the end of the movie, especially because we've already talked about the families are shit, and you know Kevin's family sucks, and like th- the amount to which that doesn't matter when you get to the end, I think has to do with the mother son relationship because I think that better reflects, especially at this time, like you know early nineties, you had more like. A mother-son relationship is easier to build that kind of sentimentality around versus a father-son, I think. A father-son relationship, you have to have a very different kind of movie to build around for the early yeah. 90s. Well, and yeah, like, but I, that connection of like she had him and there was almost mm-hmm. like the psychic connection that they're, they have where she, she has the intuition that like, you know, most husb- husbands don't have more so than the wife on like the well-being and and like knowing what's wrong with the child. And so I think yeah. and and I think it's like way cooler to have her like I'm going to go on this cross-country adventure to like save our child. Like yeah. I think that's way more amazing than than the father doing it. There are numerous points in both movies where like men are trying to tell the mom you can't do this and she's like don't fucking start with yeah. me. Like- <laughs> Especially when in the second one, when she like she's like, "There's not a mugger in New York who would dare cross me." I'm like, "I believe yeah. you." Yeah. And like, I, th- I and and that and that emphasizes that like parental drive in a way that if a dad were just going out and looking for him, wouldn't have come across as well. Yeah, I do find it. I if if it were if it were to be this, if you were to throw in like a Steve, Steve Martin is the one that sticks out to me from those names that you threw out there. What would have worked for me if you were to do it that way would have been you can still do it the exact same way. But basically, you you create what would be like a C plot, which would be both parents say, we're both going to try and get home to our kid. We're going to try two different ways to see who gets there first. And basically, okay. Steve Martin, turn, it turns into like planes, trains, and automobiles, too. And it's him trying to get home and it's through like a series of mishaps. They're competing with each other. I love him more. Well, or it's just like, hey, let's just let's like divert and see who can get home first to sure. just like, let's let's, you know. <laughs> give ourselves a chance here on two yeah. different, you know, whatever sides, um, a race to find a child know. first loser pays for college. Yeah, exactly. They'll be fine. One <laughs> <laughs> other, uh, one uh, other behind this. Uh, did you have more Steve? No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, one other real quick behind the scenes thing that I never knew was so John Hughes brought Chris Columbus on, uh, for this movie, uh, cause they had like hit it off. And Chris Columbus had read the script at like a down period and thought, thought it was fantastic. And, um, but, but initially Hughes wanted him to direct Christmas vacation because for any John Hughes fans out there, you know, that John Hughes wrote all the Christmas vacation movie or, or all the vacation movies up to the, the third one, but he never directed any of them. And they were always different directors. 
So Chris Columbus was originally, I didn't know this, the original director of Christmas Vacation. That's crazy. But before even even before cameras could roll, Columbus came to the realization that he could just not work with the difficult Chevy Chase after meeting him. And uh, (laughs) he also is quoted. He's also quoted as saying that uh, Columbus said Chevy Chase treated him quote like dirt. And so when he like walked away from that project, he thought, okay, this is really going to hurt my career because Chevy Chase is a big star. And this could be like a big comedy, but he just pulled the ripcord. He's like, I, I can't, I can't yeah, work with this guy. He, he missed and out so on he, nothing but trouble. Yeah. So he, uh, he ended <laughs> up. Yeah. So like when he got this though, cause Chris Columbus, if you've, I'm sure you've grown up with some of these movies, he wrote gremlins and he wrote the Goonies and he wrote young uh, Sherlock Holmes. So he was more of a writer. It wasn't until Home Alone came that he became a direct, like a big time director in his own right. And then he went on to do Mrs. Doubtfire. He did a number of the Harry Potter movies and like a bunch of other family movies. So Percy Jackson. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I didn't look them all up. But he also just did the Christmas Chronicles too uh, on oh, Netflix, it's where so Kurt good. Russell plays Santa, and it rules. Goldie Hawn, baby, Mrs. Claus. Yeah. It's awesome. Check it out. Anyway, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, well, it's funny to think like that, you know, those two careers met at that point between Chevy Chase and Chris Columbus. And then to see what happened to I, those careers <laughs> ever since, I, I, hear good like one out. I hear stories like that. And it always makes me think of that, like interview from a couple of years ago with Chevy Chase, where he's just like sitting at his home, wondering why people don't like him. I wonder, I wonder. Wonder how that happens. <laughs> uh, to uh, switch gears for a little bit, uh, two things. First thing is typically when we do a, a, a franchise strikes back episode, I ask I ask this at the very beginning, but I forgot, so I want to bring it up now. Tim is always getting wasted uh, drinking while we do these episodes. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> what are you what are you uh, drinking today? Um, I, actually, I I was just drinking gin. It's just gin. <laughs> Um, cause I, with, you know, what would you call it? It's got to have a name for the, it's what you just drink? gin. Okay. No, I, cause, uh, the Tim's uh, home alone, for, punch. uh, with, a whole uh, cheese with, pizza just for me with the, uh, the incredible <laughs> surge of COVID cases that we've been seeing, uh, recently, I did not feel like going out and restocking my liquor cabinet and mixers. So it was, I didn't have. I, I wasn't able to do a theme Mouth- drink. I just I've been drinking mouthwash. Yeah. So I, I, I just I just I was just going to go with whatever yeah, was yeah, already. Tim here. calls it gin, but I think I saw a bottle of rubbing alcohol next to his. <laughs> anyway, um, so I was just looking at what I had in my liquor cabinet, and Lynn and I have a mutual friend who apparently said, uh, "Think says gin tastes like Christmas," and so that seemed as good as it a does. Anything. Yeah. So it's uh, very just good. gin today. Okay. All right. Gin. Uh, we'll, we'll think of a name for it. Um, okay. And then uh, just moving on, uh, this is actually kind of something to have to think about a little bit is I wanted to pose the question to everybody. What is the best? We'll kind of, do- there really isn't a worst. So we'll just kind of like frame it as one thing. What What's the best of these two movies? What wh- Which one would you, because I actually think it's a harder answer than may appear. Best movie I- of the two. I think it is really hard and I don't know because like what I put down, I do think the first one is more grounded because um, the second one, especially when you get to, you know, the, 
the traps and stuff at the end, I feel like they play much more loose with physics and the amount of injuries a person can take and still get up and chase a nine-year-old kid around. So I think the first one is more grounded, but the second one, like I said, the second one has Tim Curry and like, he's fantastic in the role he has. And someone else, I think it was maybe fabs, I think, uh, said that he thinks the second one is funnier. And I think I would agree with that. I, I think I laugh more watching the second one than the first, but I do think the first one, like just as a story, I think is a, is a little bit tighter and more grounded. And it has, I think more, I, I think the emotion at the end lands a little bit better than in the second one. But it's so close, and it's yeah. just really hard to say one is definitively better than the other for me. For me, uh, I, I it's not really all that close for me. I, I, I put the first as stands out. Um, it's not that the second is bad. I think there are many, many way worse sequels. I think they did a very good job in finding a new interesting idea. You put Kevin in the setting of New York, you introduce some different elements, you play with the old elements. So like they have fun with it. There's good dialogue. There's good physical comedy. It gets zanier than the first one. So yeah, it's not as grounded, but yeah, I I think the first one just works better as a script. I mean, it's the first one is kind of planes, trains, and automobiles vibe, but then there's traps in it. Like it's, it's the style of humor and everything is pretty much the same. And then the, the second one, they, they up it and it becomes a little more like kid friendly in certain ways, but it's, I mean, it's definitely still really funny. So yeah, I, I like the second one. I, I think the first one just sort of shines through as the better of the two though. Okay. So for oh, me, and also the first, Tim, Tim mentioned Tim Curry in the second, but the first one has John Candy. So there's that. That's true. That is true. Okay, so for me, I, I'm going to – I think the first one, um, I mean, it's a classic. It, it it does set up you know an entire decade of family holiday movies that aren't just you know adult holiday movies. They, they realize, oh, we can market to kids and make money at the same time. Um, I, I like the second one better. I Tim Curry, I know John Candy's in the first one. But we only get a little. Like we get a lot of great stuff with Tim Curry. Tim Curry gets to be the victim of of the prank with you know uh, angels with filthier souls. We get um, <laughs> we get to go to New York City in in the uh, in the winter. Um, and I think where I like the second, I realized just watching the back to back yesterday that like. So you have your opening 30 minutes for both of them. Then there's that like 40 minute sequence where Kevin's kind of on his own exploring the city. I think the second one does – I think it it doesn't stall as much as the first one. I do think the only issue I have with the second one compared to the first one, I think it, it becomes like a little forced that he has to take them through this this house of horrors. He just does it to get back yeah. at them. Because like right, he, can, right. he can, he has the he has the Polaroids. The moment he climbs up the tube to his uncle's house, he can just hide out there and go to a police precinct. He wants to fuck with them in that so way, which is that's, like insane. That's that's <laughs> yeah, something I wanted to bring right. up, and that's that's been a point of mine for years. Is that so? In the first movie, I talked about earlier of how John Hughes <laughs> does all this stuff to set up why Kevin, why all these things like are plausible, and the issue of why Kevin in the first movie cannot go to the cops is because he steals the toothbrush accidentally because he's scared of the South Bend Shovel Slayer guy. And then they literally have a cop chasing him, like a store cop, 
going after her. This guy was outside. So like they have a cop chasing him. You know, he's not going to really get in trouble. But Kevin at eight years old doesn't realize that. And so right. then later when the cops come to check on him, he's like hiding under the bed. So they really show a plausible line of like why Kevin doesn't want to say, hey, these guys are going to try to rob everyone. But as Fabs is saying in the second one, there's, he has there's also there's also with the first one why it makes sense is he recognizes Harry. And when he first sees Harry, he's dressed as a cop. But I think Kevin so, knows that he's not really a cop, though. I don't think the idea is that Kevin thinks that a cop is robbing well, the neighborhood. Well, well he never looks that, at him when he's a cop. He never sees yeah. him as that. Well, you, or no, no he sees that's, him that's with why a he recognized the gold tooth. Yeah. So, I, like, but I don't necessarily know that. But when you're an eight-year-old, you're still making that connection. And I, I always thought that that aided it. Where if you're an eight-year-old and you saw someone that you saw dressed as a cop who is now like acting shady, that is going to cause you to hesitate calling the cops. Sure. I think there's a little more all cops are bastard than this movie is uh, attempting to be, though. I, I, je- I, I always Tim, took it as... Tim is really pushing the uh, anti-Blue uh, Lives Matter. I, I I genuinely think... I've always thought that Kevin realized that he was faking it before. But you're right. I mean, he is a little kid, so it could be yeah. mixed up. Yeah. But, but, the, uh, but in the second one, yeah, he has Polaroids. He has them on tape. He could go to a cop at any point, but the comment I've always made is that, no, Kevin would rather take them all through his murder mansion. <laughs> and so he does. But I did realize in watching this the second time, the movie, I mean, to John Hughes' credit, the movie did make an attempt at covering this. I just don't think it did it as well as the first one, because the first one really sets it up with stealing the toothbrush. The cop is literally chasing him and he's running away and you get that sequence where he's sliding on the ice in this movie, you have the credit card thing, and he gets caught by the uh, by Tim Curry, and right. he has a moment where he says, "I committed credit card fraud," and it it mirrors in the first one when he says, "I'm a criminal," like he whispers to himself. So I really think the movie is trying to make that connection in this one again, where he's like, "I can't go to the cops because though I'll get in trouble because I use the credit card," but the problem is it doesn't come through as clearly because one, Tim Curry is not a cop. And two, he never interacts with an actual cop in this movie. So it seems real loose. And whereas in the first movie, you get this real kind of like Kevin feels he's in danger. And in this one, it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to lead him to this house. But so it, it is there. It's just not like done well enough. In I both think cases, like- he also still calls the cops in the end. So <laughs> they, they, they both still end with him calling the cops, even though he was afraid to oh, go yeah, to them. Up absolutely until that point. wants to mutilate these men. That's part yeah. of his innate character. Well, and in the second movie, uh, in the... <laughs> that's part of his innate character. <laughs> oh, he's a, he's a like the Kevin McAllister adult is dark. Yeah, I have... he is. Yeah. I have a question as we're talking about the the death well, house well, in the before, second one. Before we do that, Steve, where are you falling on this? So, okay. So I think uh, I might enjoy the second one more. Uh, I think the first one is probably a better movie overall. But the second one has – and both are just like chock full of great lines. But whenever I like joke and send friends texts of the movie quotes and stuff, a lot of the time it falls on the second movie where I'm saying like, oh, you're cooking, Frankie, or get out of here, you nosy little pervert, or I'm going to slap you silly. I, I always say that Cheeks, to my Bony own. Bob, Cliff, it's a Momo lie. with the gimpy leg. 
Um, I, I always love saying, wouldn't want to spoil your fun, huh, Mr. Cheapskate? Or, uh, you know, just Merry, like, I mean, it's just Merry so Christmas, many. Like, filthy animal. Which is the sweater I'm wearing right now. I love it. So I think like from just like a pure comedy perspective, the second movie is probably has for me some better lines, but I think I, I like the first movie. I, I think I would prefer the second if I had to choose, but I love the first. And the thing, one thing about the second that always kind of is a little, a little much, I would say is that it kind of like the first movie is great because it exists in this sort of confined space of a house where it's like yeah. okay i understand that like you know like i understand like if a guy puts his head through the door and i'm sitting there with a bb gun i can shoot him right in the forehead and like that would hurt or when i make the doorknob hot or you know just like stuff like that or the the paint cans on the staircase even makes sense but in the second movie like the thing that i wouldn't say bothers me it's still fun but like when marv opens the door and he looks and like somehow doesn't see this big ass hole <laughs> in the floor. It's like, oh, okay. Or when he when he pulls a string from like the, the ceiling and he's just like it's just like falling, 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 and then Ooh. he looks up and sees the bag. It's like way more Looney Tunes than yeah. it is yeah. there's uh, a you know there's a lot of a, people not paying attention to their surroundings in the second one. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's yeah, a lot asking yeah. for it. The, like, right. the one that the one that sticks out to me in the second one, it was one that always stuck out to me even as a kid, is uh, when Marv is in the basement and he's slipping on that like monster goose stuff. So like he's doing his like funny little slippy dance, that's fun. But then he slips and he falls on his back and somehow and then just goes. that propels him <laughs> forward <laughs> into the, the wall of paint. Like that that like I don't even know if I've seen Looney Tunes break physics hey, that much. But you know what? But then again, the second one got us the electric the electrifying of it's the amazing. electrocution of of Marv, and like that alone makes up for everything. I, I will say that like especially re- revisiting these in as adult. I found that I will never not laugh at Daniel Stern's high pitched screaming. Like it, it's it's during oh, yeah. the, the electrocution bit. Oh, okay. But also, but also when the uh, when the tarantula is put on his face, I just yep. died. And then at the very end, when the birds are attacking them, and he's scr- like, "Oh, it's so good." He like he's a genuinely good physical and and like line based comedian. It's kind of surprising that he hasn't had a a bigger career in some of that yeah. kind of stuff because like yeah, he's like Joe Pesci is in here because he's a tough guy. That's that's why right. they hired him. And like he does some funny stuff, but it's it's sort of the Robert De Niro and Meet the Parents. It's like all right, well you're playing we're you're going to play a tough guy, but in a comedy. But Daniel Stern like is like bringing a lot of he goes all in. stuff. Like it's yeah. remarkable. Yeah. Um, but there was one line in particular, you were talking, Steve, you're talking about the lines uh, of the second one. And this is what I totally forgot. But when it hit, it wasn't that it was like the funniest line, but I, it struck me so much as like, Oh, that is such a John Hughes line is. So Kevin is wandering the streets of New York at one point. I can't remember exactly why, but he's coming across a bunch of like scary people. There's some like hookers that talk to him. <laughs> yeah, and, like, almost random scary hobo, hobos guy. Random yeah. Hobos and stuff. Yeah. I can't remember exactly where it falls in the plot, but um, he's coming across these people and then uh, he like gets to a cab and he's like, okay, well this is going to be safe. And like, I can get him to like take me to my hotel or wherever he needs to go at that point. It's at night too. So you got this like 10 year old wandering around New York city at night. Um, And he's like, Oh, thank God it's scary out there. And then they have this like big looking guy who like, I think is like from a, from Goodfellas or something like he's definitely played gangsters and he, they gave him like a, a milked out eye and he's got all these like 
things on his face. So he turns around, he's the cabbie, and the, but the Kevin says, it's scary out there. He says, ain't much better in here, kid. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that is so John Hughes. Yeah. It, terrible business practice. Like, you want customers. Like, why <laughs> yeah. are you scaring them? The the New York presented in like that Central Park at night was very much like this the the version of New York that Rudy Giuliani has spent his lifetime railing against. Oh yeah, like <laughs> yeah, Donald Trump's like you can use the plaza, but I want to, I want Central Park to be like the Central Park Five. Like it was that, that was like scary. the it was like the boogeyman version of New York that like conservatives have always hated. Yeah, small town um, people have avoided for their entire lives. <laughs> So, um, I do have, have I do have on on Trump. Uh, if you haven't watched this movie in a long time, Donald Trump does have a cameo in it. Our president, and I, I, our and I, I remembered that because it's been circulating around the internet for a while. But uh, so then it came up, and literally the statement that came out of my mouth when he showed up was, "Hey, it's that fucking monster we all hate." So, uh, <laughs> so that's where I landed. Also, he does tell him to go down the hall and to the left, and Kevin McAllister goes to the right. Because so. even Kevin McAllister knows that Trump is a liar. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he, knew. Knows he doesn't know anything about his own hotel. So, yeah, Tim, right. uh, earlier, what did you have on the murder mansion? You had something. So, so I have a question that ties to the house, and it's something that I picked up this time. So in the first movie, they're flying to Paris, right? That's the trip they're taking, and the reason they give is – they're so a family member transferred to Paris. So they were flying them all out there. So the family could be there for, for Christmas. And then in the second movie, when, when we find out about the house, like his dad has a comment of, Oh, I wonder if he knows to go to um, my cousins or whatever. It right, is. His brother. It's the same his brother, bro- his, the same the brother same from one. Paris. It's, it is the same one. So yeah. they've been in Paris for over a year. Because I think they're and, rich as fuck. I think his whole family yeah. is and, rich, and that was the, Uncle well, Frank. I, well, they came back to renovate. <laughs> well, that's the thing. They, they say they're they, – so the, the line that's given is, oh, they're in Paris while the apartment is being renovated or the house being renovated. And then we see the house. That is not being renovated. That place has been abandoned. Like, it is abandoned, condemned. And especially if they've been in Paris for over a year at this point, and that's as far as that house has gotten for renovations, th- they gave up. And I mean, I think it's pretty obvious <laughs> they're just for gutting the place and starting over. But I, but it just made me thinking, like... But it's an entire I building. Know, like, I they know. own an entire building. Yeah, it's like a four-story. Like, that thing is... Wor- they could sell that now for, like, over $8 million, probably. <laughs> But yeah, like, so I made that connection and like I said, like, it just seemed like they've been there for so long. It doesn't seem like very much progress has been going on. So then it just had me starting to wonder what are these people hiding and are they where Kevin gets his bloodlust from? (laughs) Probably. I would imagine. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the other thing too about that house is like that brother Rob is going to come home and be like, what the fuck happened here? Because like, why did, where's all my paint? Like what? What happened here? What, that's his they question. The Where's bathroom. all of my paint? Is his only question he's gonna have? <laughs> Why is <laughs> there are six hundred gallons of paint here? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a few other things. I think it's really just some it. construction foreman's gonna have to deal with it. Like after the Christmas holidays, he's gonna come that back like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> yeah, right. Why? Oh, I, don't I... Know, I don't know, Mister McAllister. This bid's got to go up now. Uh, this is a lot of problems we've been hitting. I don't know. I think there's some homeless people coming in with squatting over the holidays. I don't know, <laughs> throwing bricks off the roof. I don't know what happened here. <laughs> 
Those are my five favorite bricks. Looks like they set a rope on fire and it kind of destroyed the whole top floor. We're going to have to tear it all out. Uh. <laughs> they blew up the toilet. <laughs> um, and here, and here, here's another question uh, that I wanted to throw out to all of you guys. Looking at these first two movies, assuming you have to go through all of the same traps, there's no way that you can like change your fate. Would you rather be Harry or Marv? Oh, which, God, that's such a which, fucking which, question. Which, which, which assuming you, assuming which we survive, assuming we survive, like, right? Yes, yeah. you survive. You still feel pain, but you will not die. Marv, it's got to be Marv, um, because Harry gets his ass, gets his head lit on fire twice, and, and, and like, and it gets scarred for life. Whereas, yes, yeah, with the, hand, yeah, the one with thing the hand that's thing. So, like, <laughs> theoretically, Marv is not harmed long term, according to the rules of the film. Marv, yeah, Marv, like, uh, getting, yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Getting electrocuted would be pretty tough to, to the point where your skeleton is showing. That's pretty rough. But, yeah, like, it would appear that it, that Harry suffers a worse fate. Also, his hair does grow back pretty quick. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. Like, for being, like, charred at the in the first movie, it seems to be, like, differently charred in the second movie, where it would appear his hair grew back. Uh, but... I don't know. Yeah, I would say it's got to be Marv. Yeah, the fire stuff, man. The fire stuff that Harry has to endure. Just <laughs> just grabbing that that handle alone, I will take whatever uh, Marv has to handle. See, I was actually leaning towards Harry mostly be- – like the fire thing was the big one for Harry. But aside from that, it's mostly like slipping and pratfalls where Marv, I felt like, had a lot more like – impaling and he was electrocuted for like 15 oh, yeah. seconds the, the nail through the foot is pretty bad oh it's pretty, that's terrible. That's pretty terrible so like i i was actually and for a kids movie like, they show it they yeah. show yeah. it yeah. halfway yeah. through his foot it's crazy <laughs> i also I think and, and maybe part of it too is like like Litton brought up, like Daniel Stern's like scream, like he just really sells the pain in a way that Joe Pesci doesn't. So, <laughs> to Joe Pesci's credit, though, every time I watch this, because we just did Goodfellas for Revenge of the '90s, so like I very it's very clear in my mind having just seen that, and so having, I, it's a pretty huge feat and like pretty incredible range that he's able to even do this. Oh yeah, you know, like it, it's pretty amazing that he pulls off that character because i do agree that he's not like he's not a comedic actor i mean he kind of is if you think about it but like he's not like this physical comedian but to be able to pull off some of this um where like you know you've got to like if you're burning your hand you got to be like oh and like you know pretend like your hand's like on fire it's it's pretty amazing like i think it it really works i the other speaking of like the uh you know stunt work and that kind of thing the Pratt falls. Uh, I think that Netflix thing I was mentioning goes into this somewhat, but like the, the stunt work in this movie is insane. Oh yeah. Like the, the stunt guy who throws him off himself off the stairs that are icy in the first movie where like literally the guy had to like from the top of the steps leap off the top of the steps and land on his back on the concrete. Like I understand that it's obviously made to be safe ish, you know, quotation marks, but <laughs> it, Still, I mean, the things that these stunt guys are doing, it's a master class in that beyond everything yeah. else, even. Like, this is just a movie that's just like features. This would have been like a stunt man's dream. 
Well, I, I saw that, that Chris Columbus said that when they were filming stuff, that they weren't actually laughing like on set for that stuff because it was always just, I God, I hope he's okay. <laughs> like they were always <laughs> just worried that the yeah. stunt guy was damaged from some of this stuff. He might not get back up. The other fun thing I learned, uh, now that we're kind of segueing into our interesting bits, wrapping this episode up uh, with, you know, fun facts, is I was reading an interview with Daniel Stern talking about, uh, you know, how he went. We were talking about how, like, you can tell that they're just going for it in in these movies, especially him. And, uh, you know, talking about reminiscing and all that kind of good stuff. And they brought up the spider scene, the tarantula on the face. And uh, contrary to popular belief he did scream it wasn't dubbed in and he said that he was able to do that because tarantulas don't hear which i thought was a fun fact because he was scared what i saw was that the the people who uh worked with the tarantula told him they don't have ears but i don't know if that that was that from the way i read it it made it sound like maybe they lied to him so he would do it but i don't know (laughs) maybe that's how he's gone for 30 years thinking that like he was because he asked if they could take out the spider's like stinger or fangs, whatever, yeah, fangs, yeah. I, they called it something. I don't know what, but um, I guess fangs. And they said absolutely not. That would kill the spider. So they <laughs> they were like, he's got to have it. But like, I don't know, man. That just because they were gonna do a rubber spider or whatever, and that takes some serious balls. Because I have <laughs> I have a serious fear of spiders. That like that scene really makes me sweat. Oh, I, I wouldn't have been able to do that as an actor. I've been like, no, no. that's it. I'll take, Rubber a, spider. Real, I'll take a real paint can, but I'm not, I'm not put, don't put the spider <laughs> on my face. <laughs> right. Launch um, me off the roof. That's yeah. fine. A couple other rando notes that I had. Um, so one, we were talking about like the family being shitty and there's one moment in particular I totally forgot about. And I think it's like really bad in relation to the previous year because they build up the mom like Catherine Harris fantastic they build up the mom is very sympathetic she's very troubled by everything that's happening she's driven to get back to Kevin they have this great reconciliation and everything in the second one she obviously is very concerned as well but there's this moment after the concert goes bad when Kevin's mad at the whole family and he's like storming off and he says he ba- he makes another wish, which God in these in these movies just grants these wishes of eight year old because like <laughs> they show these exterior scenes where like wind is blowing and all this stuff, and it's like clearly like okay something some kind of magical force <laughs> is happening. It's not like happenstance, like like God is fucking willing these things to happen. But anyway, maybe uh, it's Krampus. So in the in the first maybe. one, Kevin wishes for his family to disappear, and in this one, he wants he's like. I don't, I want to be on a vacation all by myself. And the, and Catherine O'Hara in just like the coldest voice possible says, well, you got your wish last year. Maybe you'll get your wish this year. And it's like, holy fuck, you're his mom. You went through <laughs> hell to get back to him. You know how dangerous it was. And I just like, I don't know. Maybe we will leave you again, Kevin. That's, well, that's- how you know how toxic a family this really is. That like. He's estranged from his, he emancipated himself like within two years of this family. When I, and I get that she like, you know, does all this work to reunite with him in both movies, but like every time in, in both movies, cause it happens continuously where she's just like, I'm a terrible mom. Like both Caitlin and I are going, yes, yes, yes you are. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's the first step is she acknowledges it at least. 
the the other bit that uh stuck out to me so anyone who's seen this probably remembers kevin goes to visit santa claus to ask for his family back um like a fake santa claus guy and um the guy's willing to hear out his christmas request and kevin like leads to his like I don't want any presents this year. Tell Santa, I just want my family back. And he lists all their names. And I realized as an adult, I was like, and the, the Santa guy, Kaiser, gives him like a weird look. And he's like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll pass along. But like, did that Santa think like Kevin's family died in a tragic fire or something? <laughs> like, right, like yeah, was it right. like a boating accident? Because that guy doesn't know anything about what's going on. And he's not he's just sitting there like a seven-year-old by himself in the middle of the night. It's just like wanders over to him. On Christmas Eve. Yeah. Like on Christmas the... Eve, just wandering the streets. And then he just like matter-of-factly gives him Tic Tacs. Yeah. Like, abs- like it's the most noble thing in the world. Like, oh yeah, this kid just ran up to me. Better give him some Tic Tacs and send him on his way after he just wished for me to bring his family back. <laughs> Unreal. I love it. Uh, what was the... Uh, I, I, Linton, I know you wrote it down. What, what was the box office for this? Do you have it? Oh, it's crazy. Um, so, yeah, we kind of We're alluded it at the beginning of the of the show. Like, this movie, and Faz might know a little more on this, like, just sort of kicked down the door for family comedies and what they could do slash make. So the first one cost $18 million, which I read originally they wanted it to be like, it was supposed to be set up at Warner Brothers, and it was for $10 million. Hughes got a feeling that Warner Brothers wasn't going to budge if they needed to go over budget. And so he secretly met with 20th Century Fox and was like, hey, if they like screw us over on this, do you want this movie that I mean, because like 10 million to 18 million, like I still I think it's nuts because I don't know why Warner Brothers would. Nobody would have expected it to make the money I'm going to say it made, but okay, you make it for 18 million, you could almost certainly still double your profits in 1990 right. or triple. Right. Like, yeah. like I don't I don't understand why they thought this was so risky. But yeah, so it, it was going to be 10, went up to 18. Warner Brothers said, well, we don't want it anymore. And he goes, cool, I've been talking with 20th Century Fox for months, so uh, they do. <laughs> so he took yeah. it over there. So it's an $18 million budget. It made $476 million. So some of that... 18 million, there's always like marketing and stuff. So that's not total profit, but still like just, just, I don't know how many, I, I think it was like 24 times or something. It was some crazy number. Yeah. Um, 20, uh, so $476 million on such a small investment. And then the second one still had a crazy return. They upped the budget to 28 mil and it made 359, which obviously not as great a return, but still like nutty. If you yeah. are, you know, just doing business in Hollywood and anyone would want that return. Two movies, the the two movies plus whatever they've made on the back end of like, you know, video sales, uh, leasing it out, whatever. That's a billion dollars. Right there. Of yeah. a, fran- the, it's a billion dollar franchise. They did those video games. Movies. And yeah, now like it's such a hol- ingrained holiday classic that, you know, you have a sweater of it, Chris. Or, yeah. Sorry. Steve, um, you have a sweater. There's people who, um, you know, make shit uh, like uh, Etsy. Etsy. Yeah. I mean, but that studio probably doesn't see all that. But like, yeah, there's all kinds <laughs> of like, of that. But there's all kinds of like, you know, <laughs> novelty things you can buy associated with Home Alone that they're just like merchandising the hell out of it. Yeah, I hope we didn't just like clue 20th Century Fox into Etsy and they shut the whole thing down. <laughs> What's this Etsy? We love Etsy. 
and and Fab's had his talk. Boy. I had a talk boy, which was like yeah. the hottest Christmas gift from the second movie. But yeah, I mean, you're right. It, this this leads to an entire. Oh, now it's an entire industry, but like it kicks off the '90s with them making movies exclusively for families around uh, like Christmas movies exclusively for families. The Santa Claus goes on to be like a master hit. And I mean, you get so many more that come become adaptations of books. Um, and it, it's cause I was trying to well, think stuff about like cheaper by the dozen, probably like, the oh, Steve yeah. Martin, like anything where it's like, Oh, a bunch of family members and they're all totally, crazy. Yeah. yeah. And you didn't, like, you didn't really have anything that was targeted toward that demographic. Cause it was very much like the, these movies are for kids these movies are for adults. There is no way we can ever blend them. That will never happen. And then like, oh, wait, no, it can't. <laughs> I mean, you, yeah. you you had some Disney movies that did that, like your Mary Poppins and stuff like that, where there was yeah, but... like a crossover appeal, but not I, – I, I still think Home Alone is pivotal in that – it showed the bankability of that and it, it caused studios to up their game in making these kinds of movies. Yeah. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just Disney doing them, uh, you know, however, so often like it became like a, a standard part of a studio's financial plan. I think those older things too, though, like Mary Poppins or like apple dumpling gang or whatever. It's a lot of just like, <laughs> sanitize shit like like mary poppins is a good movie but like old disney live action stuff it was a lot of very sanitized stuff where i think as an adult you would watch a lot of them be like sure we'll watch this the same way you might you know watch like the ice age movies with your kids or something like in protest whereas like yeah. i think what home alone <laughs> did so well is you can genuinely enjoy it the family feels real the adults feel real and so it's kind of like how you know you watch MCU movies now and you enjoy that the the characters aren't just you know like badass superhero or like or, or whatever like that they make them real characters and fun and you can enjoy them. So I think that's one thing that Home Alone did um, that a lot of like the family junk didn't. I, I did want to ask you, Fabs, because you mentioned Talk Boy. I had one as well. They didn't have the slow mo feature though, right? I think that was it, one thing that they it did. did. Yeah, my mine did. did? And, and okay. they had a, the talk girl too, which is like very funny that <laughs> we were so obsessed with trying to get it when it's literally just a, a tape recorder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much yeah. well, they, and then, everything they, that a tape recorder does. Yeah. It had like then there was the yak back and all that yes. stuff where you could like, you know, warble your voice and all that kind of stuff. Um one last thing that I think I want I, I saw in the trivia that I wanted to make sh- or fun facts or uh, just thoughts. Uh, Fabs, you have a Mount Rushmore of movie homes. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Let me pull up my Mount Rushmore movie, and I think I like talked a little bit about this um, in uh, when we did Father of the Bride. Let me. Where's my yep. list? Um, okay, so my Mount Rushmore of movie homes. Um, okay, so obviously the McAllister family home, incredible. Um, the home from Father of the Bride, also amazing. Diane Keaton's home from Something's Got to Give, it's totally amazing. Hampton's Hampton's home and an oddball, but it's still a very cool house. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle, the houseboat from Sleepless in Seattle. Okay, I like it. Well, I think what we'll do for part two is we should come up with our. The rest of us will do our Mount Rushmore of movie homes and uh, do do that for uh, part two because that's a fun one. I, those are some good. I, we've talked Father of the Bride so many times that house how much we love it and how yeah. insane it is when you talk about trying to trying to uh 
put together the job that somebody would have with that kind of house. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> at least in Father of the Bride, we knew that his his occupation. In this one, it's still such an incredible gray area of what the McAllisters do. I know totally. the novelization does its quote unquote financial services, but um, it's it's still. I know that's a point of contention with people every year. As the internet has gotten older, you know, the people who grew up on this movie, I love that that became like a debate. Uh, every year it becomes like somebody just puts up that house on like Twitter and like it spurs like a thread of people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like go, going off about it. It's super fun. Um, which, again, is another enduring thing about, you know, these movies is that people still care about it 30 years later, having grown up on it. So uh, I don't think I have anything else. Does anybody else have anything that they want to uh, get into uh, or throw out there? Good. All right. Only other note, uh, we're talking financial stuff. So Home Alone 2, I don't know what he's paid on the first, but Macaulay Culkin was paid $4.5 million at the age of 11. They said he got like, it was six figures for the first. It was like, I think it may have been like 850,000 or something. It was under a million. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So yeah, man, the fact that he's like, I would say it appears that he's like fairly stable these days and able to like yeah. function is pretty incredible. Like that is not, not anything any kid should go through, but he seems to have come out the other end. Okay. Yeah. And his brothers uh, have done really well too. Yeah. Isn't his brother, isn't his brother fuller? Yeah. Kieran yeah. 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 And then he okay. had another brother that was the kid in signs. Rory, yes. Rory, Rory, Rory Culkin. And he's, he's on succession now. He was in yeah. Scott Pilgrim. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's doing a bunch of, Volkswagen commercials with Paul Giamatti. Hey, man. <laughs> you made it. I think that's like a billion succession crossover they're doing on that, which is amazing. <laughs> oh, that would make yeah. sense. That, yeah, it is. Those yeah. commercials make more sense to me now. Uh, okay. So this is part, this ends part one of the Home Alone uh, extravaganza for Revenge of the 90s. This is where we drop off uh, for the time being uh, until one day we force ourselves to do just Home Alone 3. Uh, but for the rest of you uh, Franchise Strikes Back fans, uh, gird your loins for the second half because we're about to stick our feet into the pool of <laughs> straight shit, which is Home Alone 3, 4, and believe it or not, 5. Yep. So um, uh, what are our social media handles, Tim, for uh, uh, first uh, franchise? Uh, uh, back, at Back Franchise. At Back Franchise uh, and Revenge of 90s Pod. Uh, also available that, on Facebook for uh, for both of those. Also on Facebook, and just while we're at it, follow Cinema Uncanny or Uncanny Cinema. I'm sorry, Uncanny which... Cinema is the show for obscure films, uh, and then Cinema Uncanny is you were right is on the... that. that. That's the Twitter okay. handle. Uh, also okay. on Facebook, and then obviously you can find the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and everything else. Love it. All right, we'll see you guys for part two. Catch you later, boy. Let's review some films, see what we gotta say.